Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It's December the 17th, 2021. We're crawling to the end of 2021. Did I was in New York uh, earlier this week, had some dinner with some friends, and, and we talked about what a catastrophic year 2021 has been. And of course, it's been a catastrophe because of medicine. We can't blame medicine, but the pandemic and COVID has shaped 21, 90, uh, 2021, not 1921, like no other year or, no, or like no other year that most of us have lived through. And unfortunately, the headlines remain about medicine. Uh, you're looking at the front page of the New York Times today. is astonishing. Their, their lead story is about doctors and nurses living in a, a constant fear of crisis, as if medicine itself is breaking down because of COVID. Other leading stories in the Times are about um, the Omicron surge of COVID now shutting down offices and holiday parties. Um, Scientists, doctors are racing, according to the Times, to gouge the threat of Omicron and that horrible map we've seen of deaths and reported cases of Omicron is uh, of, of COVID is on the rise again because of Omicron. It's not just the Times, the Washington Post uh, leads also with a crisis of medicine. Their lead story is about a hot economy colliding with a huge virus source. CNN leads with it. COVID-19 cases are rising across America now. Um, Wall Street Journal uh, talks about the triggering of new precautions because of COVID. Um, about almost 10 years ago now, I had one of America's leading physicians, a man called Eric Topol, Dr. Eric Topol, on my old TechCrunch show, which was then keen on about the opportunities for medicine in our technological revolution. And I'm thrilled that at a time when medicine is on the forefront of news for rather dark, rather than optimistic reasons, uh, Eric is back on the show. Eric, you're joining me from, uh, from your base in San Diego. Right. Good to be with you, Andrew. Yes. It's always sunny down there, Eric, isn't it? That's what I hear about San Diego. Pretty much. This is the rainy season, but even today is a really sunny day here. Well, Eric, along with Tony Fauci and, and one or two other very distinguished physicians, you've become the authority on medicine. And in, in this is you are the kind of guy um, we're relying on. Uh, on Twitter, for example, you have uh, 565,000 followers who are following your wisdom uh, to kick off. Eric, where are we today? Uh, the morning, Californian morning, uh, December 17th, 2021, when it comes to the, the crisis of COVID. Well, it depends on whether you'd look at the global perspective or the U.S. But if you look at U.S., um, we're in a very uh, tough state. We haven't done anything to contain Delta as a virus. Uh, and that version is pretty much... Uh, in a growth unconstrained uh, pattern in, in many places in particular. And then on top of that, we have this second dose of an even more fast growing Omicron variant, which is starting to get to the 20 plus percent level in many different uh, spots around the country. So we're looking 
at uh, a really tough number of weeks, even perhaps months uh, going forward, where we're going to see the highest number of new cases, new infections, and then the downstream sequela from that. So it isn't it isn't good, Andrew, that's for sure. Are you making money? But are you not sure you're doing all the right things with it? Are you investing it correctly? Are you saving it? Or are you somehow losing it? Is it falling between the cracks in your life? Does money stuff stress you out? It certainly stresses me out, and I'm sure it stresses out all of my listeners. Are you just winging it with your finances? I am, you probably are, and most of us do, because that is the nature of most of our financial self-management. If any of those things are true, you've got to try Facebook. If any of those things are true, you've got to try Playbook, the app for growing your own money. For the average user, Playbook helps boost their net worth by over $1.3 million. Yes, that's $1.3 million. There's no paperwork with Playbook. You just connect your own bank accounts and Playbook builds a plan to maximize your own tax advantages. Playbook tells you which tax-advantaged accounts you need, how much money to put into each of them, and even automates these processes for you. Money stuff can be stressful, we all know that, but Playbook makes it easy to review your own financial plan, track your own financial progress, and make changes at any time you want. Plus, it's all automated. Once your financial plan is in motion, Playbook is on it. They keep an eye on all your finances and adjust your plan accordingly. It's rare, very, very rare, that a finance app thinks about your finances as a whole. That's your all your finances, your taxes, your savings, and all your life financial goals. Whether it's a wedding, a family trip, donating to charity, or the FIRE lifestyle, Playbook helps you get there faster. So what's my favorite Playbook feature? I really like the way in which the app shows me all my accounts, all my goals, and all my progress in a single place instead of having to log on to 10 different confusing finance apps. Uh, Automatica contribution to my Roth IRA and travel fund uh, every month. The Playbook Impact. It tracks and predicts how old I'll be when I can stop working forever. So get on the road to financial freedom go to helloplaybook.com forward slash keen on. And with my unique link, helloplaybook.com forward slash keen on, you get a free playbook impact. It predicts how much your net worth could grow if you start today. helloplaybook.com forward slash keen on.
playbook to financial freedom and beyond. Well, I'm sorry that um, you have to be the um, the messenger of such bad news. It's often the messengers, of course, who get blamed. Another headline today from The Hill was a story about Trump, who's no longer the president, but appears to be the president. He seems to be more in the news than the current president. Apparently, he sought to undermine COVID the COVID-19 response. Can we blame Trump? We, blame, we seem to blame him for everything, uh, Eric. Can we blame Trump for the failure to address uh, Delta, which, as you suggested, um, is is the really scary thing, given that Omicron hasn't even impacted on us yet. Well, I certainly can't blame Trump for the Delta issue, but the problem is it's not the singular person; it's the the politicization of the pandemic, and the party that Trump uh, is connected with has been resistant to vaccines and masks and science in general. Uh, only just above half of people from the Republican Party have been vaccinated, whereas it's 94, 95% of people in the Democratic Party. So when you see that type of demarcation, that's a fact, whether that's Trump indirectly or just a, a, the politics playing out. And frankly, the reason we haven't controlled Delta, which is eminently responsive to vaccines, that is, the vaccines protect beautifully against Delta, is because our vaccination rate is below 65 in the list of countries. Even though, Andrew, we are the ones who, the companies that, like Moderna and Pfizer, that made the very potent uh, and very safe mRNA vaccines to get the world started. So we have ample supply, but we have such divisiveness that I could never have envisioned that's holding us back. Yeah, none of us, none of us could have envisioned it. Uh, when you appeared on my show, as I said, it's almost uh, 10 years ago, um, uh, Eric, uh, the destruction of medicine in uh, March 2012. We didn't talk about the politicization of, of medicine and of the community because it didn't exist. I mean, there are headlines today, in addition to that headline about... Um, uh, 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 about blaming Trump. Scott Atlas, one of the, the medical, quote-unquote, medical men, some people don't see him really as a particularly genuine medical figure. He, in his new book, uh, he blames Anthony Fauci and Debbie Burks. Um, what has happened within the medical community to have all this finger-pointing of, of one doctor blaming another for the failure of politicians to address the pandemic? Right, well... The countries that have been really successful, and obviously, particularly uh, Omicron and the hyper-contagiousness of Delta gave us all challenges, but the successful countries have led with science, have had unity against the virus, not against each other. And we don't have that. We have infighting even among our leadership uh, between the White House and the NIH and the CDC and FDA. There's, there's serious infighting, and that's not good, no less, you know, at the level of the whole country. So we can't get our act together. We, don't, we haven't yet distributed medical-grade KN95 masks uh, throughout the country, which we should have a long time ago. Uh, and that's already now starting to happen in certain places like New York City as of yesterday. We have never gotten rapid antigen tests distributed to everyone free, as has happened in many other countries. So we just haven't gone along with the science that would help us so much. 
in controlling things. The number one thing, of course, is the vaccination and the third shot booster to keep that vaccination protection at the highest possible level. So, you know, we, we know what tools are, are available. We just don't use them. And the biggest thing that's holding us back is the divisiveness. Yeah, and that divisiveness is is a feature of of every show. We we you know, we got some books in the new year about the imminent civil war in America. Meanwhile, we have to address this crisis. You mentioned Eric, other countries. Uh, is it the the usual suspects? Denmark, Taiwan, Korea. Are there particular models that America, for all its size and divisiveness, could conceivably copy, emulate? Well, the best model right now, interestingly, is Japan. Uh, in Japan, um, they started having an outbreak uh, shortly after the Olympics with Delta, and they got their vaccination rates up exceptionally high. And as you know, they have an older population there, and they have this under total control now. They, they basically... Well, they uh, shut the country off. I know my daughter was planning to go to to Japan at Christmas and you can't go. I mean, right. is that, it, it's all very well for the Japanese to do that, given their culture of suspicion of outsiders, given the fact that they're an island. Is that conceivable in America? Could have America just essentially cut itself off? No, it couldn't. But, you know, there's other models of how to manage. Look at Israel. Israel was the worst country in the world uh, during the Delta phase, but they decided to go very aggressive with boosters and they have it under wrap now, and uh, they're well prepared for Omicron. I, I didn't mention that first because obviously it's a small country of less than 10 million people. Um, there are many countries uh, around the world. You've mentioned a couple. Denmark, you know, had this thing totally under control. And unfortunately, they made a decision since things were looking so great that we're going to just abandon all mitigation just go back to make believe there's no such thing as a pandemic. And so then Delta got unleashed. They had a big out, uh, outbreak throughout the country. And they had been so good about using rapid antigen tests and controlling everything and testing and doing genomic surveillance sequencing in almost every case. And then Omicron set in. And now it's really um, a, a tough situation and hospitalizations are, are starting to go up substantially as well. So even countries that have had model performance, when they got the illusion that we could just relax, you know, go back to normal, that doesn't work. The reason I mentioned Japan, your point, Andrew, about closing down the borders, okay, yes, but you have a large population approaching 100 million people, and they have never relied on vaccines only. They have never relaxed mitigation. They use masks. They use the three C's, which is cluster busting and for you know preventing big indoor gatherings. So that is a model that works. Vaccines alone isn't going to do it. That's for sure. We talked about um, doctors. Of course, Eric, you are one of America's leading doctors. You're kind of you're lucky, I guess, in contrast to someone like Tony Fauci. Uh, you haven't been thrown into the firing line. I feel really sorry for him. I mean, he seems a remarkable man. If anything, he deserves the Nobel Prize for various things, maybe science or peace. A few days ago, he said that uh, Omnicom-specific vaccines are not needed. This is in the post because booster shots will pr protect. And today he said that we might need to redefine what fully vaccinated is. But Fauci is a prisoner of the science. So he gets thrown out there 
he, he, he doesn't know any more than anyone else. Uh, what do we need to do in future? What has the pandemic told us about the visibility of wise doctors like Tony Fauci? Well, I have deep respect for Tony. I've known him for decades. Uh, and he is in a very tough position. Part of it is, you know, we're learning. Uh, as you well know, Andrew, that's what science is all about. You're continually learning, revising hypotheses and, you know, reviewing the evidence. And we've learned so much over these two years now. Uh, so some of the things that were right earlier were become wrong and vice versa. Uh, but there's the politicization extends not just to the anti-science, anti-vaccine, anti-mask, but also anti-Fauci. And that's what's sick. That's really sick. Uh, he's doing the best he can. We don't always agree. I don't think our vaccines are good enough to, to uh, prevail over Omicron. I've been pushing hard to have us get coordinated globally for a pan-coronavirus vaccine, which I think is eminently doable. Wow, that's uh, but We have I mean, many different uh, steps now that would get us there quickly, but it hasn't been made the top priority. Um, but interestingly, Andrew, the same day that Tony presented that we don't need an Omicron-specific vaccine, he published as a co-author in the New England Journal this, this week, Wednesday, that we, we urgently need a pan-coronavirus vaccine. So you can't go, you got to be consistent, right? Um, but no, I think that's the one thing we haven't put enough resources in because this virus, even though we've had five major variants, it doesn't mutate in a, in a functional way uh, at a very high clip. And it's ideally suited for a we know the choke points that could take this down immunologically. Uh, there are many that have this powerful uh, way to uh, these broad neutralizing antibodies that we can re-engineer uh, from that a vaccine that would be effective and variant proof instead of going, you know, Greek letter at a time. That's what we should we should have by now. We should be in clinical trials with that by now. But there hasn't been the type of Operation Warp Speed priority that we need. Well, let's remind ourselves, Eric, also of the achievements of science and medicine, in particular when it comes to um, to, to to COVID. Your pin tweet for all your over half million followers from uh, November twenty eighth, twenty twenty, a year ago, you say, uh, in terms of the response, this will go down in history as one of science and medical research's greatest achievement, perhaps the most impressive. And you put together the preliminary timeline for getting a vaccine. Looking back, there's still much to be said for the achievements of science in terms of COVID, isn't there? No, no question. It's been monumental. Remember, people, I, because of the time uh, blurring, uh, people don't realize that the first vaccines were administered just a year ago. Uh, and the fact that we had them within 10 months of sequencing the virus uh, with 95% efficacy uh, for at least the first four months um, and would have held up even more had there not been more challenging variants that we didn't get the early global containment we needed. So that, I think, just to put that, uh, flank that with some perspective, uh, the average time it takes for a vaccine from the identity of the pathogen, which was the SARS-CoV-2 virus, to uh, a vaccine is eight years. That's when there's success of a vaccine. But there are many like malaria uh, and so many others, HIV. We've never had a vaccine that's successful. Uh, so 
the point that we got one with 95% efficacy in 10 months yeah. from the sequence, that's unbelievable. People just lose perspective. And now billions of doses of those mRNA vaccines, I mean, billions have been given. And it's remarkably, they're remarkably safe and effective. So, you know, that is, um, I think, the biggest triumph of science. We, we were facing, you know, truly a, an existential crisis. If we didn't have vaccines now, we would have had so much more toll of deaths and, and you know, hospitalizations and long COVID than we have, which is substantial. So, you know, we, we have to say we're lucky, even though, of course, the look doesn't give that sense. Well, we're certainly lucky to have Eric Topol, one of America's leading scientists and thinkers on the future of medicine. Um, we're going to take a short break now, Eric. And then after the break, I want to talk about um, your innovations when it comes to your career, your new writing career on Substack, your books, your research. So we'll be back. We, well, I don't want to just talk to you about COVID because uh, Eric Topol is so much more than just COVID. So uh, Eric, if you can just wait 90 seconds and we'll be back and we'll talk more about um, about your Substack career and, and so on and so forth. Talk again in about 90 seconds. Hi everyone, Andrew here again. I'm not sure if you're listening or watching or even reading about this Keenon show. I certainly hope you're enjoying it, but I wanted to remind you that there are many different ways you can use to enjoy my Keenon show. The first, of course, is by, in a very traditional way, subscribing to the audio-only podcast. You can do this um, using Apple or Spotify or CastBox or many of the other traditional uh, podcast distribution platforms. We're on all of them. And if you want to access uh, all the podcasts together, you can go to my LitHub page um, in their podcast section, which is dedicated to all the interviews. Uh, if you're into watching this, as opposed to simply listening, um, if you follow me on Twitter at AJ Keen, you can watch these shows live uh, and you can do the same um, if we're connected uh, on LinkedIn. I'm not on Facebook. I'm not a great fan of Facebook, but LitHub is. And on their LitHub live page, you can watch these shows live as well. Um, in terms of uh, recorded videos, uh, not live, you can see all the shows on the LitHub YouTube page. So whatever your preference, whatever your taste, whether it's video or audio or text, there's no excuse for not watching or listening to my show. Now, back to Keenon. We are back with Eric Topol, physician scientist, author, editor. Uh, Eric, when you came on my show uh, almost 10 years ago, you were talking about uh, your first book, um, The Creative Destruction of Medicine. Um, you've written three books since, and the latest chapter in your writing career um, in addition to all, all your uh, research, um, is on Substack. You're a, a, a writer in residence, and you have a, a really wonderful new Substack uh, called Ground Truths, which I strongly encourage everyone to sign up for 
What are you trying to do on Substack? What is Substack enabling you to do, which you can't do with books or your own website? Right. Well, I think it's an interesting project for me. I'm trying it out for a month and I'm just the first week or two into it. Uh, the whole idea was Twitter, which is the main way I'm communicating, uh, isn't sufficient. That is, um, there's all sorts of issues about getting toxic response. Uh, you, you can't really elaborate because of the, unless you make all these threads and people don't really want to just keep reading threads. And, you know, they, they, for people who want to be informed, you know, I do think uh, writing it in an essay form uh, is much more helpful with graphics that support what the, the, the points you're trying to make. So that's what I've been doing in these first posts of uh, ground truths. That is, there's been a, a couple on Omicron, one on the uh, Paxlovid pill, which I think is going to be immensely important in managing the pandemic. And I'm going to keep working not just on the COVID, uh, but also on other biomedical matters, uh, as long as this turns out to be uh, as promising as as looked uh, in the early going. What messages, Eric, are you trying to put out about the future of medicine and the challenges of medicine on a network like um, like Substack that you think is not being heard enough? You, of course, you're also a very prominent researcher. Uh, I don't know if you, do you run Scripps Research. Certainly, you're a very uh, very senior person uh, within that. So what 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 isn't being heard at the moment that you want to put out over your, your new ground truths on Substack? What is a ground truth that isn't well known? Right. Well, yeah. So at Scripps Research, I run an institute within it, which is the Translational Institute. And I'm an executive vice president of the overall Biomedical Institute, which is really a phenomenal place. I've been here 15 years now. With respect to what else uh, besides the pandemic that has, of course, been central uh, my main interest these days is in artificial intelligence for medicine. That was the subject of the deep medicine book. That is taking our data, whether it's genomics and sensors and the, our gut microbiome, all these different layers of data, our environment, which we can quantify now, and integrating that to prevent illness, to help better, better manage those illnesses we have, to promote autonomy, that is, doctorless screening and diagnoses to, you know, just use algorithms in a very efficient, accurate uh, and helpful way. So that's really what I'm interested in. I'm, we're in the early days of that, but it's starting to get pretty exciting. And uh, the other interest within that, of course, is genomics. And I think everyone by now has heard of CRISPR and genome editing. And that is a revolution that's going on, uh, which is also very uh, enthralling to watch, which is going to lead to cures, cures of many diseases that we had no treatments at all available, one-shot cures with genome editing. So there's a lot of excitement in medicine. You know, unfortunately, I'm an old dog, but this is the most exciting time ever in my, you know, three going on four decades in medicine. And uh, it's something, you know, that has helped the pandemic, but there's so much beyond the pandemic that to be, to be thrilled about. Eric, the, the subtitle of your last book, you mentioned it, Deep Medicine, How Artificial Intelligence Can Make Healthcare Human Again. Um, has healthcare lost its humanity? Uh, earlier in the year, I had Robert Pearl, I'm sure you know him, a very prominent Californian physician writer. Um, 
who wrote a book recently about how the culture of medicine is killing both patients and doctors. Has medicine lost its humanity? Yes, uh, I know Ravi Pearl well, and we agree, as do many physicians, that our relationship with patients has terribly eroded over the years. Uh, doctors and nurses, clinicians have become data clerks. They don't feel they can actually provide care for patients. They're squeezed so hard. The pandemic has even added more to that. So we have a serious problem whereby technology, I know it's counterintuitive, but AI has the potential. That's really the, the main premise of deep medicine to turn this around, to give uh, patients more charge to decompress the load on physicians and to use the these the digital tools that we have to make uh, that patient doctor relationship return to being central the human touch the the deep communication and empathy and the fact that you know your doctor has your back and really is listening to you and really cares about you that also is the root cause of our global burnout in medicine because of this sense of not being able to care for patients because of all the other stuff that's uh, diverting us from doing that. Eric, uh, you, you, you talked about the empowering patients. The, your second book was The Patient Will See You Now. The future of medicine is in your hands. We've done a number of shows about that. I had Talia Myron Schatz on the show recently, an Israeli-based writer on how to choose for patients to live a healthier and happier life. My question for you is, how do we, how do we empower patients in a, in a productive way rather than just make them angry and demanding and the, the kind of trolls we find on Twitter insult you all the time, which is why you're looking for a new platform on Substack? Right, exactly. Well, I think the first thing is we have to have patients own and have all their data. Today, you can't even get your data or you have to beg and grow forward, it's, it's just horrible because right now it's this lack of uh, democratization whereby health systems believe they own your data. But in fact, it's your body you paid for. Uh, Eric, let me jump in here. I, I, I take your point, but let's, and maybe I'm being unfair to the anti-vaccine lobby, but let's take a, a typical anti-vaxxer who's suspicious of medicine, who has fetishized the the problems with the vaccine. If these people, the, the, the 30 or 40% of Americans who refuse to have vaccines, if they had their data, two questions. Firstly, would they understand it? It's so hard to make medical data comprehensible. And secondly, would it actually change their mind? Would it break down their hostility to medicine and to guys like you? Well, that's the hope, uh, Andrew, because it doesn't mean you don't, you don't have to understand it. But if you are controlling it, whereby you share it with who and when and how much that it's your call and that you have all of it, which hardly anyone does because we go to different doctors uh, and different health systems uh, in this country. So the issue here is that we have no experience to answer your question. I, I tend to be optimistic that when people do have all their data and are controlling it, they get more into it 
And we do have ways to help people interpret it, to provide data visualization. And we have algorithms to you know, give insights to people that they otherwise wouldn't have. Like for example, if people take their blood pressure and you know, get one screenshot of all their blood pressures and then give advice as to what is off the track or even a person can make that call on their own about what is their medicine or about their, their work or whatever it is that's causing uh, a challenge to get good control of their blood pressure. And that's the number one disease of mankind. So, you know, there are people that are obviously this isn't for everyone. But if you're going to democratize medicine in this digital world that we live in, we've already seen the likes of places like Estonia and right. Scandinavia, Switzerland, many countries around the world have switched to this model, of giving patients more uh, control and authority. And that's the start of it. I mean, obviously, there are certain things that are happening uh, in parallel, like, for example, diagnosing your heart rhythm through your smartwatch or, you know, diagnosing a skin uh, rash or lesion through your uh, a photo through your phone or an ear infection of a child or a urinary tract infection from picking up an AI kit in a pharmacy. These are things that are empowering too. That I, don't I take the off. point, Eric, but you know, for say, for example, for the 30 or 40% of Americans who are radically overweight, you don't need to own your data to understand that you're unhealthy. And that message seem, doesn't seem to have had any impact. So how do we well, how but, do we get people who are not medically literate to, to face up to the responsibility of looking after themselves? Right. Well, there again, you know, we have new tools, these virtual coaches that are helping people with obesity, uh, which today people have to pay for. But we would be smart to once they're validated and shown to be highly effective to make these freely available so people wouldn't have to pay because obesity is a huge burden in our uh, in our uh, health country for the health consequences. So we we have many things that we could do, Andrew, to ante up to the medical burden that we have at both the national and individual level, but we don't use them wisely. Uh, so, you know, this is uh, the future is to be more bold and aggressive about using effective, uh, validated tools that are out there. And you mentioned Estonia, Eric. Um, I've spent some time in Estonia. It's on the te technological cutting edge. Also mentioned Switzerland. Uh, what about Taiwan? Um, you mentioned uh, Japan um, and Denmark in terms of confronting COVID. Um, is there a country that's really empowering patients to make them more literate about their own health? Well, Taiwan is a great country for having model, uh, managed the pandemic and providing excellent health care. I can't say whether it's democratized. Uh, perhaps Estonia is the number one model for that right now. It's a small country, but it's been immensely successful. So I, that's the trend. You know, when I wrote The Patient Will See You Now, a lot of people thought that was a, a fantasy, but I do think it'll be actualized. It just takes time. Remember, when you and I spoke about the creative destruction of medicine a decade ago, in that book, there was the forecast that we're going to rely more and more on telemedicine. Well, very little happened until the pandemic forced it. And now it's here for good. It, it takes sometimes the silver lining of a crisis to finally get things moving. And we will see more democratization. It's inevitable when there's digitization of all the things in medicine, this is going to happen. It's just a matter 
more when it will happen. I agree with you and your book that we talked about in 2012, The Creative Destruction of Medicine, How the Digital Revolution Will Create Better Healthcare is still enormously relevant, Eric. Um, and their tech crunch, typical tech crunch headline was why the entrepreneurial opportunities are, in your language, limitless. Are they still limitless? If What advice would you give a young entrepreneur who wants to jump into the healthcare business? They are indeed limitless. Uh, we're still in the early days of using AI for healthcare. No one has cracked multimodal AI, which is taking all these different layers of data, including continuous output from sensors and everything else, and, and, and providing that as a way to prevent conditions someone otherwise is high risk to develop or uh, manage conditions already that exist um, that aren't well controlled. So there's so much to do there, no less just helping the uh, accuracy of medicine, the uh, charge for consumers to give them more capability. So it's a very, I mean, it's, it, it's still early, but there's truly uh, extraordinary opportunities here for, for entrepreneurs and startups. It's still early, as always said in Silicon Valley, until it's too late. So uh, it's fortunately, it's still early. Uh, Eric Topol, you're a real wise doctor. We need guys like you. You're the author of three books, The Creative Destruction of Medicine, The Patient Will See You Now, and Deep Medicine. I hope we'll get some more books out of you. But for the meantime, uh, people who want to read your wisdom need to sign up to your ground truths on Substack. In addition to your books and ground truths, Eric, uh, what else should people be reading in these strange times as we still, it's not clear whether we're living in, in, in post-COVID, who knows at the moment, it's a surreal time, but uh, to warm us up for the holidays, Eric, what should we be reading in addition to your books and your Substack? Well, my favorite book this year, which is just one of my favorite ever, is uh, The Code Breaker by Walter Isaacson. Mm. about the genome editing that I touched on, which is an area that I have keen interest. Uh, but uh, Walter Isaacson is probably, if not the best, one of the top few biographers of our era. Yeah, an old friend, Walter, he's, uh, he blurred my last book. And of course, he was on the show talking about his Steve Jobs book. We need to get Walter on to talk about his genomics book. You should. And it's a great book. It's really worth everyone reading. He, he uh, covers the field, particularly Jennifer Doudna, uh, who... Um, was a co-winner of the mm. Nobel Prize. UC Berkeley faculty. Yeah. And so, you know, I think that book would be number one on the list. I've got many others, but um, you just can't beat that one if you're if you're interested in science. And you should be if you're not. Um, I think that's um, genome editing is, is uh, the most transformative uh, uh, factor in our lifetime, uh, in, in life science. And that's the way to get familiar with it. Well, maybe uh, that will be the subject of your next book. Eric Topol, a physician, scientist, author, editor, and wise man. We need more of you, Eric. Maybe you can replicate yourself using AI. <laughs> keep well, keep writing, keep thinking. And uh, I'd love to, it's been almost 10 years since you were last on the show. Uh, we need to get you on Keenon more often to talk about the realities of COVID and post-COVID life. So thank you, Eric. Happy holidays and keep well. Thanks so much for having me, Andrew. I really enjoyed it. Thanks so much for watching this Keenon show. I hope you were inspired in some way. I hope you found it interesting. And if you want more of these kinds of shows, you need to subscribe 
to the podcast uh, on the Apple or, or, or CastBox or Spotify platforms. All major podcast platforms carry the Keen On Show. Or you can also watch live uh, on my Twitter page, uh, my LinkedIn network, uh, or on LitHub's uh, Facebook Live page. Um, I also hope you'll decide to follow me on Substack. Uh, I have uh, a newsletter on Substack in which I develop and expand on a lot of the themes we discuss in the uh, Keen On show. And I hope you'll also follow up with me personally, uh, perhaps uh, to give suggestions for future shows. You might email me at a.keen at me.com. Or you may also email me with suggestions about potential guests. I'm very open, uh, very eager, in fact, to have requests, ideas of, of people with interesting new books and projects, which I need to talk about. So thanks so much again for, for, for watching Keen On. I'm thrilled that you're a member of our community, and I'll look forward to hearing from you in the not-too-distant future.